morning. need to talk this morning about how God loves us. I need to talk this morning about how God loves us. Here in chapter 11 of Hosea, God says, I am God, not man, the Holy One among you. God and not man. I am the Holy One among you. God, not man. The Holy One among you. The Holy One in your midst. The Holy One right here where you are. And as I read the history of how people have thought about God, I think a lot of the wrong ideas about God, a lot of bad theology, comes usually from missing one of the above. Either folks miss the idea of God as the Holy One, or they miss the fact that He is in our midst, that He is among us. How many times... Have you heard somebody say, our thoughts and prayers are with him? Right? Like every news conference after a Ravens game when they're talking about somebody who got hurt, our thoughts and prayers are with him and his family. What does it mean to say my thoughts are with him? It could be a polite way of saying that I have concern about that person. It could be a way of saying you're somebody that I care about, and so I'm thinking about you. And if it's weird to say that I am praying for you, then saying I'm thinking about you conveys at least a personal concern, a personal caring. But to say my thoughts go out to him is something else. This fits with the idea you may have heard of sending your good energy into the universe. You may have heard this. The, the, the word for this is pantheism, right? The idea that really the universe is God and God is the universe and you just kind of pay it forward and then somehow it's all going to come back to you. And You're not praying to any personal deity. You're just sending good thoughts for somebody out into the universe. This is nonsense, and this is heresy, and this is absurd, and this is very, very easy. This is very convenient, and this is very socially acceptable. But it's not something that we can do if we recognize that God is the Holy One. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who has revealed himself. We say when we recite the creed that we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. The beginning of Genesis, the beginning of our Bible, says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
So that pretty much sets up a choice between pantheism, the idea that God is the universe and the universe is God, and what we confess, which is that God is the Holy One, who is not the universe, who is not to be confused with His creation, spiritual, material, energy, matter. God is God, and He is the one who created everything else. Are you sending good thoughts out into the universe is as useful as taking a leaf blower and moving your weeds from one, your leaves from one part of your yard to the other one. God is the Holy One. God is separate from His creation because He made it all. This idea of God as the Holy One, this truth we confess, also runs up against some more recent innovations in theology that came about really in the 20th century. You may have heard of process theology, or as the Canadians would call it, process theology. This is not theology that has to do with single slices of American cheese product. This is the idea that God, in order to be in relationship, has to be able to change. If you think about us, when we're in relationship with one another, we're, we're changed by our relationship with one another. So therefore, if God's really in relationship with us, God has to be able to change. God has to actually be able to become something that He's not by virtue of being in relationship with us, which is a really fond notion and, and makes us feel really special. We're not that special. God doesn't need us to improve himself. God loves us dearly, as we'll talk about. God loves us passionately. But God does not change by virtue of his relationship with us. God is also not, as liberation theologians would, would say, God is also not bound by our actions or by our causes, or by the side that we take. The great scandal of the gospel is that God is not only the God of the oppressed, but God is the God of the oppressors. And so simply by being somebody suffering on somebody else's behalf doesn't mean that instantly God is on your side. God's holiness transcends any of our causes any of our preferences, any of our identities. But I think it's more common in our lives and in our casual conversation in the world we live in to, to see God's holiness trivialized. And this is what happens when, when we engage in superstition or magic, right? I mean, the idea that somehow God is going to be bound to do something because we put our underwear on the same way while our team was in the World Series, which it wasn't, sadly. But I mean, that's trivial. But, but you get that in also when you have people asking questions like, well, you know, when you meet God, what's the first thing you're going to ask him? When you meet God, when you see God face to face, when we see God face to face, I think the last thing on our minds will be asking him what he thinks. We 
bowing down in awe, trust, worship. At some point, eventually, I'd like to find out who wrote Hebrews. But I don't think that's going to be the first thing on my mind. You hear people talk about the man upstairs. Jesus is man. He was and is and always will be fully human. But God exists eternally in Trinity. Three in one, one in three. The man upstairs does not describe this reality. Have you ever had somebody say, say a little prayer for me? There are no little prayers when you are addressing the Holy One of the universe. There is no such thing as a little prayer if it's a prayer. God is holy. God is utterly other than us. God is God. There is none other like him. But some of these wrong ideas about God can come from focusing so much on God's holiness, so much on his transcendence, so much on his being completely other than we are, that we miss the fact that he is also the Holy One in our midst, the Holy One among us. And most notably, we see this in Jesus, right? In the beginning of John's Gospel, it says, and the Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent. He moved into the neighborhood is the way that Eugene Peterson renders it. Psalm 46, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. The, the refrain in that is, the God of hosts is with us. God of Jacob is our fortress. That psalm describes a stream that makes glad the city of God, which is where God's people dwell. What's this picture that we keep getting in, in, in Scripture of Zion, but, but one of the place where God is dwelling there? in the midst of the people. He is holy. His glory fills the temple, but he is there in the midst of his people, which is why one of the most chilling scenes in all of Scripture is that one in Ezekiel, chapters 8, 9, and 10, where Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord depart from the temple. And his special and unique presence among his people was withdrawn for a time because of their sin. But often this missing that God is truly in our midst, that tru God truly is among us, springs from a, an interest in maintaining God's dignity, right? I mean, how many, you know, there, there's a joke that, that uh, progressive Christians will say, why hasn't God answered our prayers for world peace because he's too busy finding parking spaces for evangelicals. There are people who think that it is beneath God to be concerned about caring for our daily needs, asking for our daily bread, they would think was probably a little bit below God and maybe Jesus shouldn't have done that. Deism was sort of the, the full expression of this, the idea that God was like the great cosmic watchmaker who 
made the clock and wound it up and set it running and he sort of sits off at a distance and just kind of watches things happen. That God isn't going to involve himself with the grubby little details of our life. That he has way more important things to do than to help you to pass that test or to help you with that job interview or to make sure your car can get to the gas station without running out of fuel. This is not the God that Scripture testifies to. This certainly is not the kind of God that the prayers of the church think of. I mean, if you take a prayer book, uh, the, the Book of Common Prayer in the hands of a deist is like the army field manual in the hands of a pacifist. I mean, there might be something useful there for them, but it's really not for them. No, Scripture talks about a God who is deeply and intimately engaged in our lives, who loves us intimately, who loves us personally, and who really does care about anything that we care about. Now, it may be that we're caring about something too much. That's called an inordinate desire, but the problem there is not that the desire is there. The problem is that the desire is excessive. So if you're hungry and you pray that God will provide your daily bread, that's perfectly normal. If you're obsessing about shrimp, that's probably not, and that could be a problem. Then you're giving something else the place that God deserves in your mind and heart. But God is not, if we take Scripture at all seriously, off in the distance someplace dwelling in perfect self-sufficiency and observing all the silly things that his creatures do. He loves us deeply. He loves us intimately. And he loves us passionately. One of the great struggles that I've had in my studies <clears throat> is in engaging with the fact that for most of the history of the church, the church upheld the doctrine of divine impassibility. Now, I'm sure most of you got up this morning and thought, I really hope that when I come to church, Jason's going to talk about divine impassibility, because that's been bothering me for a long time. <laughs> um, this actually is important, so give me a second. Impassibility is the idea that God does not suffer. Does not suffer, right? Jesus' passion is his suffering. So the idea of impassibility is the idea that God does not suffer. Where does that idea come from? Like so much else, it comes from Aristotle. Aristotle said, well, if there is a God, that God must be a perfect being. There must be nothing that could be more perfect than that being, and that being must be something that cannot be acted upon, but can only act. So if that being is experiencing suffering, or if that being is experiencing really any kind of emotion as we would understand it, then that being is acted upon. And if that being is acted upon and changes, does something different, then that being would have been in a lesser state of perfection, because he had to change to get to a greater state of perfection. 
Some of you are nodding your heads because you've heard this before. Some of you are nodding your heads to be polite. But the point is, th- this, was, this is Greek philosophy, and this held court among the fathers. This held court among the great medieval theologians. This is, in a lot of ways, the, the, the superstructure on which Aquinas' whole theology is based. And the problem that the, the great theologians quickly discovered is that this does not remotely fit what we find in Scripture. As in Scripture, we, dis, we find described a God who loves passionately. And so what they had to do was they would have to say, well, when we mean that God doesn't suffer, what we mean is that there is no power that can work upon him from outside. I, I, I went several rounds with a good friend of mine who is a philosopher and is, in fact, a student of Thomas Aquinas and is an evangelical and is one of the ten smartest people I've ever met. And, and he has successfully managed to convince me that this is nonsense by still trying to uphold the doctrine. Uh, basically, you can say that there is divine impassibility. You can say God doesn't suffer as long as you can say God suffers, but God doesn't suffer. Let me tell you how Anselm of Canterbury renders this, 11th century theologian. He said, but how, and he's addressing God here, how are you compassionate, yet at the same time impassable? For if you are impassable, you do not feel sympathy. And if you do not feel sympathy, your heart is not miserable on account of its sympathy for the miserable. Yet this is what compassion is. Yet if you are not compassionate, where does such great comfort for the miserable come from? So how, O Lord, are you both compassionate and not compassionate, unless it is because you are compassionate in terms of our experience and not in terms of your own being? You are truly compassionate in terms of our experience, yet you are not so in terms of your own. For when you see us in misery, We experience the effect of compassion. You, however, do not experience this feeling. Therefore, you are compassionate in that you save the miserable and spare those who sin against you, and you are not compassionate in that you are not affected by any sympathy for misery. I'm reminded of a passage in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in which man proves that God does not exist, and God promptly says, sorry, and vanishes in a puff of logic. Man then goes on to prove that black is white and gets himself killed at the next crosswalk. Now, God does not love us passionately while remaining impassable. God loves us passionately. God feels. This is what Scripture Um, can I explain how, how what is in the defense of progressive theology? Yeah. No, no. God, God isn't changing. It's not, God, God tells us, God testifies to us in Scripture that he doesn't change in his essence and who he is. But he also tells us that he feels deeply. So let me see if I can manage that. First of all, we have Jesus, right? I mean, that's sort of the answer to every question on Sunday morning. Jesus suffered. 
you read the stories, one of the ways he suffered was having to put up with his disciples all the time. But Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus experienced pain. Jesus, in his full humanity, experienced pain. If Jesus is fully God, then God experienced pain. God suffers on the cross. As Bonhoeffer said, only the God who suffers is the God who can save. Jesus' passion was physical. Jesus' suffering was physically painful, but Jesus' suffering was also mentally painful. Jesus had to engage mentally in arguments with people who didn't get it. And Jesus had to engage mentally, not just with people who didn't get it, but Jesus had to engage mentally with people who were like deliberately trying not to get it. I mean, there were just dumb people, but then there are people who are really trying hard to, to not get it. But certainly Jesus suffered emotionally. I mean, you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying so hard, drops of blood are coming out of his forehead, begging God to figure out some other way to make this thing work, encountering his disciples asleep. His best friends let him down, being betrayed by somebody who had been his closest companion. The Gospels do not describe Jesus sitting there and saying, well, this is an interesting and unusual turn of events that I was not expecting and certainly will complicate matters for me physically. You have Jesus suffering. Ours is a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant after Isaiah, suffering God. And some would say even, and I actually don't go here, but some would say that Jesus suffered spiritually. If you read the cry of dereliction where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some would say that there, there was somehow a spiritual suffering, a sense of loss of relationship on Jesus' part. I have a hard time squaring that with my understanding of the Trinity, and I think reading that just in context, I think Jesus is giving us the first line of a song, i.e. Psalm 22, that ends in triumph and victory. So I think Jesus was just saying, oh, say, can you see? And not telling somebody that they may need to go to the optometrist. We get this, though, from, from Scripture. Time and time again, in, in the writings, in the prophets, in, in the historical books, we see God getting upset don't we? Right? And when I think of, okay, think about that word upset. Like, being upset means that you are set, right? Somehow you're kind of in a state of stability or stasis, and then something happens that makes that no longer appropriate, right? There's good upset, right? So if, if when, when my daughter walks in to the fellowship hall this morning and says, hi, daddy, that upsets my state of just being there getting coffee. That brings me joy because my daughter is there and at least this morning was happy to see me. That is a good kind of feeling, a good kind of passion. Probably the most dramatic example of this is found in Genesis when, when Adam wakes up and he sees Eve. Adam is not a strictly rational being entirely unaffected by emotion. Adam does not go, oh, well, this seems like an appropriate compliment to me. 
and this would appear to be a, a suitable replacement for this rib that I'm, I'm short one. So um, uh, this, this appears uh, to be a, a good development in the creation process. No. He says, wow, this, I've been looking at animals for how long now? This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He didn't say, well, it would probably be suitable morphologically to form the feminine of man, uh, Isha, from Ish. He's like, I didn't call her woman. She's made out of man that we go together. We fit. This is great. I don't think God looked at that and said, well, I approve of you. Uh, contemplating that and rationally uh, recognizing my excellence. And then God said, get a room, you two. There's good passion. There's a way in which you are upset by seeing something really good. I mean, think about, you know, the, the first apple of the fall. You know, you, you're brought to a higher state of joy and delight by taking that bite than you were in before. You're the same person. You're no different than you were but the proper response to that, the proper experience of that is one of a heightened sense of delight or joy. This clock back here is properly telling us the time, or probably it's five minutes fast, which is how we try to make sure I don't go too long, but like if in 10 minutes it still says 11.10, you could say, well, the, watch, the, the clock hasn't changed. It remains entirely self-sufficient. Or you could say, we need to change the batteries. The, the clock is going to tell us what time it is, and it will, in order for it to be fully itself, in order to do what its clockness means that it needs to do, means that it's going to look different if it's 11.10 than it will look when it's 11.20. In the same way, I think God, if God is going to be who God says he is, is going to be delighted when we obey him and disappointed when we don't even as he remains fully self-sufficient, fully delighted in himself, even as he is able to be, I mean, he didn't need us. God could be fully experiencing all joy and satisfaction simply in himself, existing eternally in three persons. But he is in relationship with us, and we are doing different things. And as a result, God's way of interacting with us is going to change accordingly. God himself does not change, but God does things and, and, and responds and relates to us differently. Does that help you some, Marty? So there's good passion. There's also bad passion. I'll just go back in Genesis. One of the, you know, things go south really, really quickly in the book of Genesis, after the fall. This is, I mean, the, the fall is chapter 3. Chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, you have this guy, Lamech. And Lamech says to his wives, okay, so here's a problem right there. Lamech has two wives, which was not the original idea. Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for my wound, a young man for my injury. And if Cain is avenged 70 times, then Lamech 77 times. I mean, you don't get the sense that this is just like idle trash talk or this is LL Cool J talking about how his nine is easy to load. This is a guy who has actually killed people and is telling folks he's going to do it again. And he is boasting to his wives 
about just what a dangerous guy he is. That is bad passion. When somebody's passionate about doing the wrong thing, that's bad passion. When somebody is upset from a place of stability and move towards something that is going to be bad. That's bad. But there's also, in addition to good passion and bad passion, there's also just sucks passion. There's the kind of passion you experience, the kind of upset that you experience when you get bad news. The kind of upset you experience when you get the grade on the test or you see your kid get the grade on the test that is not what you were hoping for. It's the, it's the kind of passion you experience when you go to the mailbox and you find out that you got dinged by a red light camera or a speeding camera. But most strongly, it's the kind of passion, the kind of upset you experience when somebody you love dearly disappoints you. Somebody you love dearly lets you down. Somebody you love dearly hurts you. When something that you care deeply about, that you're supposed to care deeply about, appears to be threatened. The kind of passion you feel when you understand yourself to have responsibilities and then something comes along that seems to threaten your ability to discharge them. Certainly it's the kind of passion that you feel when you are betrayed. And, and not least, here in Hosea chapter 11, do we see God being described as suffering, as passionate, as upset. And as we've seen throughout Hosea, God uses probably the most vivid impression of a, of a profound relationship in that between a husband and wife. But here he adds on the relationship between a parent and a child. When Israel was a child, I loved them. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But, but the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. Just think about that. The more I called my people Israel, a child, the further he went from me. they sacrificed to the Baalim, the more they burned incense to images. I mean, I was the one who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they didn't realize I was the one who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke of slavery from their necks. I bent down to feed them. Turn to Egypt. Will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? The swords will flash in their cities. They'll destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to all their plans. I mean, think of God saying these words. My people are determined to turn from me. Turn from me. Hmm. 
looking for causes in this time. He will not by no means absolve you. How how can I give you up? This is this is the cry. This is the heart's cry of God. Imagine the heavy sighs, the passion and grief. How can I give up my child? How can I hand over to my beloved child to destruction? Even though my child deserves it, even though my child has run after this, even though my child has rejected me. Even though my child has spurned me, even though my child has demonstrated that he's determined to turn from me, how can I treat you like Abner? How can I make you like your boy? That's like Sodom and Gomorrah, but better. My heart churns within me. All my compassion is aroused. says continues to be astonishing so I will not carry out my fierce anger nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim for I am God and not man the holy one among you and I will not come in wrath for the follow of the Lord he will roar like a lion and when he roars his children will come Trembling from the west, come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria, and settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. God is the lover and the spouse who takes back somebody who's been unfaithful. Like a parent who takes back a child who's been rebellious. I mean, think about it. Where would popular music be without songs about unrequited love? But this is a God who still loves even when his love is unrequited. The way Heschel puts it, Heschel, a philosopher who did understand that God is not impassable. Said that God is conceived here in Hosea not as a self-detached ruler, but as a sensitive consort to whom deception comes and who nevertheless goes on pleading for loyalty, uttering a longing for reunion, a passionate desire for reconciliation. Of all the prophets, only Jeremiah has sensed a wider scale of personal relations, a more intense subjectivity, and we might disagree on that. Hosea has given us an ex a supreme expression of the vision of the subjective God, so typical of the prophetic awakening. God is not a 
felt for the past year. That is, I passionately love it. We suffered because we love it. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that like your people Israel, we turn from you. We confess that sometimes the more you call out to us, the more we disobey, the more we chase after things other than you. We confess that even though we know all good is to be found in you, nevertheless, we try to find it by our own devices. We are truly sinners, and we humble sake of your son Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us having lived among us having been the holy one in our midst have mercy on us we pray that we may delight in your word and walk in your ways that we may be a source of joy and delight 